As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast hastily sketched, not yet inked. Today we're talking about serious graphic novels about war, centering on Art Spiegelman's Mouse, which began publication in serial form in 1980. It's finally completed in 1991 and has regained its notoriety through being censored today. This is Mark Linsenmeyer, apparently a dog descended largely from cats, but sometimes mistaken for a mouse. In our panel today, Vi, introduce yourself. My name is Viber Liu, and I have learned to take mousy as a compliment. Anthony. Anthony LeBlanc, and I like to mouse around. I love also like uh, being in the club with them, too. Ooh, Monty Python reference in the first minute here. Daniel. My name is Daniel LeBlanc, and in the game of cat and mouse, I am the little hole in the wall. All right, so we've talked to Daniel recently about, you know, your autobiographical comics, And Anthony was on last summer talking about Captain America with us, which the Captain America truth is sort of borderline close to this in that it was related to real life, tragic, horrific events. But Vi, we we're doing this topic now because you wrote an article about it. Start us off. What is the deal with the censorship or why are we talking today? Yes. So uh, in January of this year, 2022, the McMinn County School Board in Tennessee decided that it was going to ban mouse from its eighth grade Holocaust curriculum. And they cited the obscenity and nudity in the comic as the reason for moving it from the curriculum. And it was a unanimous decision by the end of the school board meeting to take it away for these reasons. And that was met with immediate backlash once that got out for a number of reasons. But my particular interest in it was the matter of censorship, how we censor comics, why this comic, especially this comic, which is a Holocaust memoir. So it was very interesting to watch it play out, to watch people's responses to a contemporary book banning. And I'm very interested to see kind of where it goes, but uh, most interested to hear uh, what you all think about it. Anthony, give us a, some kind of introduction. What's your history with this property in this area? So Mouse, I first read in college, actually, in a modern epic class in which one of the things we really looked at in that world was the film, books that kind of really spoke to telling stories that were grand in scale of grand in importance. And so specifically in that course, we watched Triumph of the Will and also Red Mouse. It came back up again when we were kind of talking through, it's a class specifically at Loyola where I went to school called Auschwitz and After, which Uh, it's a philosophy class, but it's always a different topic. And specifically one that we did was the medical practices of the Nazi regime, in which, you know, another thing coming up a little bit of different representations and things. And that's why a lot of us had had this, I also been in that modern epic class. So Mouse came up again in that. But I had not read it again in its entirety until recently. And so it was interesting in this book, I think, of forgetting some of the interpersonal things with him and his dad. Now reading it, like, Oh yeah, this is so integral of like why this works so well. The idea of understanding a perspective that's not your own is always a little easier when you can see the human person in their everyday life. And it helps you understand some of those things. The anthropomorphized human person in this case. Yes. Daniel, what's your background with this? Was this a significant influence in your doing graphic novels? I was definitely, I don't know if I would say influenced, but inspired by the books when I was younger. And I think that they're a really great 
example of how a graphic novel can achieve a certain intimacy between its author and reader that other forms of media cannot. And somewhere in my brain, I probably filed that away. It's sort of the same attraction of podcasting, whereas podcasting is a very different relationship between the listener and the broadcaster than even terrestrial radio gives you. There's something more intimate about it. There's something more intimate about Mouse, which is, I think, what makes it such a good tool for teaching the Holocaust, especially to younger people. I found it surprising that they banned it as a Jewish person and as a descendant of Holocaust survivors and not survivors, and as a illustrator and as a comic book writer. It certainly pressed a lot of buttons with me, but I can't say that I was offended by it. I'm more surprised. Perhaps I've just become cynical with the way things are nowadays, with people's compulsion to ban or be outraged or find issue with things. It sort of desensitized me in a way, especially as a comedian and somebody who's worked as a stand-up for so many years. In addition to working in the comic book field, I've just watched censorship. I mean, this would be a good moment to take a little tribute to the now late Gilbert Gottfried, who was one of the first to get banned with his Affleck commercial following his 9-11 comments. That was maybe where I was still shocked by censorship. I was like, really? Wow. I mean, I thought we had free speech. I thought we really were in an open-minded society. And I didn't realize we were keen to punish people for their views or their art. At this point in history, in, in 2022, it's sadly part of the social narrative, so much so that I'm almost unaffected by it. To give my background briefly, I mean, this is something that I ran into probably when it first was put in the full book form in 1991 or so. And I think I picked it up as a gift for somebody and then read it because it's like an ideal gift for certain kinds of people that want to study serious things, but also would appreciate this form. And that the juxtaposition of those two things is why I thought this would be so great to have in here and to see, so like, what is the appeal of this in particular? Yes, it's comics. Oh, comics are fun, but it's the Holocaust. Okay, there are some comedies, some movies. Life is beautiful. And there's a Robin Williams, you know, attempts to make Holocaust humor. But you could see why someone might find it in poor taste. There was a video that I sent, uh, I'll share with folks that he had sent this to some other children of survivors early in his run as it was being released in 1980. And one of them said, you were so out of touch with your feelings, like thought that for him to present it in this form meant that he had some kind of serious dissociative <laughs> disorder or, you know, gallows humor or something kind of like, you know, what I was just reading about with Gilbert Gottfried. I don't think this is exactly what he's doing because it's Spiegelman. This was his craft and this was his father. It's not like he was trying to make a joke about the Holocaust right after it. But something I read about Godfrey today was that to be open to, I don't know if you want to say the funny side, but this sort of reflection and irreverence, I think that's, we can say irreverence, is a clear and healthy coping mechanism. And it's actually one form, ironically enough, of paying respect to something that happened or a situation is that yeah, this is actually part of life. We're not going to just put it on a pedestal and therefore not talk about it or put it in a museum and lock it away. This is actually part of people's lives. I had interviewed Gilbert on my podcast, Modern Day Philosophers, a few years ago. One of the questions I asked him was about his being Jewish, and he never really seemed to express much Jewishness in his work. He said his relationship to Judaism is basically that if Hitler was around, he would be killed. So essentially, what it meant for him to be Jewish was the Holocaust, which I thought was interesting. And I thought it was really sad at the same time, because as somebody who's been exposed to so much what I would call positive Judaism, it sometimes feels like the Holocaust has stolen the narrative of Judaism in America. It's almost overshadowed everything that is Judaism by someone who wanted to destroy Judaism. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Makes sense. I mean, I wonder if for me, my large relationship to being black is growing up in the South and that idea of like, fear of, I can't date this. I had to break up with my first girlfriend because she was white and my parents and her parents were afraid of us getting 
attacked because she lived in an unsegregated city that was forced to integrate in Vitor, Texas. So there's a certain amount of where like my relationship to my race is 100% around the idea of fear and suffering, so to speak. Not saying I don't appreciate all the other things, but that is a large dynamic of it that also helps me do what I do, which is wanting to go into satire, you know, and be able to like use comedy as a way to do things about that or say things about that. Yeah. I mean, I feel in the same way, sad to hear that as I did with Gilbert, because of course, like there's such a rich culture that you come from that's overshadowed by the negativity and the bigotry that you've experienced that it almost kind of gets in the way of allowing you to sort of appreciate all the incredible positive things about where you come from and who you are. And it robs you of that. And that's terribly sad. At the same time, I do think that there's something important about learning about it, though I'm kind of turning on that as well, because if you look at what's going on currently in Ukraine, And you look at what's going on currently in China with regards to the Uyghur population, it seems like no amount of education seems to elicit much action when it comes to genocide, when it comes to the abuses of human rights and all the horrors of this world. It doesn't seem to resonate. All the lessons of the Holocaust or slavery or anything seem almost academic. Whereas I think what we wanted them to do was to transform the way we related as a human race to suffering and to the evils of society. Though when you're looking at timelines, right, by the time you get to the world of like 1980, you know, especially 91, you're very far in the world of modern comics, right? So you've already had a 70s where you've dealt with drugs and things in traditional comics. And then you've now moved into a place in the 80s, especially where you have like, Alan Moore things happening. And so this is not really the surprise that comics can be serious. It's just that the serious comics are a little more political or they're about things that are more death or horror or things of that nature. Maybe it's not so much complete history, but it's not a weird place to then be like, oh, this thing that is now put together in full form in 1991, we've never seen a comic do this before, you know? I think there's a certain amount of what people believe things are. It's less about the serious and more about people, I think, seeing comics as unimportant or trivial or kids stuff or so looking at it down on it. So it's not so much about can comics be serious or more like is the medium taken seriously? So then people see it as a non-serious attempt at talking about a subject. That relationship between comics and children, too, has always been this point of contention. With early crime and horror comics, people were appalled that kids had access. And that seems to kind of be the same narrative that the school board takes with Mouse. Why do our kids have access to this narrative? But rather than address the kind of adult nature of Mouse, they seem to hinge their argument on those same arguments that anti-comic school teachers and parents made from the 50s, which is this is obscene. There's naked women here. We can't let kids have access to this. They're going to repeat the violence they see. And that is such an interesting take to have on a Holocaust story, that somehow the issues that you have with it are the language, the nudity. The specific panel that they have an issue with in Mouse, too, is a single panel that isn't necessarily connected to the rest of the story, but it's still cast in that same keep comics away from kids language, whether it be though for this kind of adult comic reason or just the kind of anti-comic form reason. It sounds like using a form like comics, using a Hollywood movie, using something like that has historically elicited more sympathy for these causes, more direct action might be a more powerful political statement, you know, if it actually catches on and is not just some fringe thing to the point Vi was making about censorship and how the language used was very much the same as keep kids away from comics. You know, I would think this would be more, this work is so honest. At least it has the gloss. It has the self-referentiality of being so honest, even putting his own conflicts about how to depict this, putting those on the page trying to be as honest as possible. Of course, a lot of these are the words of his father telling his story about the Holocaust, but taken from hours and hours and hours of tape. So it's presented, it's edited, it's made into a story and interwoven with the story of him getting this information from his father. You know, it's like the best kind of stand-up that is 
just raw and trying to, again, a performed, but some take on the unvarnished truth, if that's not a self-contradictory way to put it. And you might just say, well, that's great. That's art. But why does it have to be on a curriculum for eighth graders? That was not Spiegelman's intention. Looking at an interview with him today, he just found out later He was kind of disappointed at first that he was getting awards, that this worked so well as an educational thing. It's something aimed at a younger audience because that was not his intention. And maybe he wouldn't have put that particular panel or would have otherwise tweaked it somehow. I don't know. It's not like this book is being banned in terms of, well, fine, maybe you can tell us more. Removed from libraries, it seems like it's more a curriculum thing about a particular age group, not even about high schoolers, about middle schoolers. Is maybe the outrage over it being banned a little overblown given that and given that it's now more popular than it's ever been? It's interesting because they do discuss that this is an eighth grade curriculum specific issue. And and you're right to say that it's not necessarily pulled from the library, from my understanding, but it is removed from the curriculum. And the members of the school board ask the teachers, will you find a more original way to teach the Holocaust? As if the incorporation of, as we were kind of discussing, a classically considered like juvenile art form wasn't already original. But the decision to remove it was met with a discussion of, well, when can we have this discussion with kids in the educational system? And I think the way that this comic interjects itself into that discussion is it's hyper accessible. And so that gives it some kind of leverage in an educational setting even if that isn't Spiegelman's intent, as he said. Because it's accessible, it gives kids who are reading it, anybody who's reading it, a foot in the door to start asking more questions. So to hear that Spiegelman, you know, was at first disappointed that this was used in classrooms, I think is understandable because this isn't the be-all, end-all. This isn't the only narrative that students should use. I would maybe argue from somebody who uses comics in a lot of my teaching that comics is not where it needs to end. There has to be more work done on behalf of the student or the educator to engage in the topics that the comic is talking about. But it is a gateway. It is a way to open that conversation, to give kids both a textual and visual representation of something they may not otherwise have access to. And I think that's very powerful. And I think personally, that is why it was removed from the curriculum. I think there is a fear about the accessibility of this narrative that gets cast in other language, fear about obscenity and nudity. I personally don't really think that's why they banned the comic, but... So you think this is just part and parcel of the movements to, we don't want to teach the horrors of slavery. We don't want to teach really any horrors because we don't want to worry kids like that and let them learn about that in college or something. Whereas, especially as you say, a format like this especially for children, but really for anybody who's just, oh, I don't want to read about, like, I'll admit, I am a news junkie and I avoid reading detailed stuff about war areas. I don't read the details of Ukraine. Like, I'm interested in aspects of it, but like, I don't necessarily want to know what horrible thing, is. like, it's not going to change my mind about it. But when the comics come out, I'll regard that as a great way to educate people about how bad it was and probably read them. Yeah, I guess the question just comes back to what should or shouldn't kids be exposed to? And that's been going on in this country for a really long time. I don't know how to weigh in on it because my kids are really, really young. I don't really remember where I was at at that age or if I was even where I should have been. I'll tell you how I learned about the Holocaust. I was in Jewish school. In third grade, we were assigned to draw what we'd look like when we turned 30. And my dad had a friend, may rest in peace, named Amos. He was my godfather. And I always thought Amos was so cool. And Amos had a mustache. So I thought when I'm 30, I want to look like Amos. But I happened to draw his mustache a little too small. And I was called down to the principal's office and my parents were called to come in from work to the school. And it was like a huge, big thing. And and I had no idea what I did wrong. And they presented this in front of me and they said, why did you decide to draw yourself as Adolf Hitler at age 30? And I was like, who? I had been protected and sheltered from the Holocaust, even with a grandmother who escaped it. I still didn't know about it. And that was intentional on the part of my parents and I suppose the school. But 
I suppose the way I drew myself looked so much like Hitler that they thought maybe they had a Columbine kid on their hands or something. So they took immediate action. Talk about being told that Santa's not real, being devastating to kids. How about finding out that Hitler is? That was a pretty traumatic day for me because not only did I have to defend myself, but I also learned about the Holocaust. And up until that point, I had a totally different view of where Jews sat in the world. Imagine how beautiful that was. Imagine what I got robbed of on that day to have found out that people hate me because of how I was born and what I was born into. And, and I never had that context before that. I just thought the world was pretty hunky-dory, you know, you're Jewish, you're Black, you're Christian, you're Hispanic. It's all the same. We all love each other. It's all good. I had no concept of any of that until I drew Amos. This sounds like you're actually making the point that the conservatives want to make who are in these school board things of like, can't we just shield our kids from all this? Because it would be traumatic in the way that you're describing to find out that racism exists and things like that until they're 14 or I don't know what the match gauge is. And also, also, what is the benefit of that? I mean, there are a lot of kids who grow up in the fact of by very early age, they understand war and things and all the things around them where they sit in the stratosphere of the global situation that they're in. For me, it's always a thing where like the truth is the truth. And so like, I'm always a person where like, I'm never going to have a thing where my kids believe in Santa Claus. I feel that those things that might be difficult to deal with are still part of your story. And there's something important about understanding and what that also says about who you are, where you've come from, why those things may or may not be important to you. So I think that there's a certain amount of the land of creating an image that people try to protect and like, why? There's a certain thing for me of, okay, so what does it really change if we understand that Benjamin Franklin had slaves and never released them his entire life? What does that change about who he is as a person? It doesn't. The fact that he eventually moved towards abolition in a certain way, still not full on the way that we would want or hope, but it doesn't make him a person who didn't do all the things he did. It just makes him a three-dimensional human that has lots of layers to that, that exists inside of a time that he lives in. So there's a certain world of just because you're learning that, you know, especially like one of the, like my favorite things in my, in my life is that I was lucky enough to be a part of this project that eventually led to why I moved to Chicago called E Pluribus Unum, which was 20 Catholic kids, 20 Protestant kids, 20 Jewish kids living together in DC, learning about how social justice and faith play again with each other. And one of the things that was great was that we had our individual classes and then we had classes that then were together and projects and things did together. So as the Catholic kids, we just happened that the person who became the head of the education program at the Holocaust Museum, he was our teacher. And in an entire week, we talked about how the Catholic Church, how the role in the Holocaust and the treatment of Jews in, in Europe. And that was just great to be able to have that discussion in that way of understanding these things. And then part of the thing was as a group, we all went to the Holocaust Museum and threes went through as one of each of that group going through the museum together. And just happened to, in the time of going through it, being with someone whose uncle was a survivor, went through with them before the project started, was telling us other stuff about it. But just the context of that world, which I know is very important to that person, of like really having people understand that the experience and what the Holocaust teaches us is something about like everyone's role as leading to it and how it still teaches us still today about how even in marginalized groups, other marginalized groups hurting each other. The lessons of those things, I think that's what I liked about Mouse, of like that one in the car where it's like picking up the black guy, like that interaction was great. And this idea inside the story of just showing that world of how even in a place where you're seeing this one thing, we still have all these division with us and that there's a certain amount of like, if you don't confront it or understand it or have something that we can speak about it out loud, then it just hangs out in the shadows and gets to grow. You learn at the age, I think, that you can handle it. I think that you can have those discussions early. I had discussions early with my parents about race. And I feel like if I didn't get it, they would have been, okay, we'll come back to this. And that seems to be the school board's issue is that they are not willing to have the discussion. And there is a moment in the minutes where they toy with the idea of cutting this unit completely because it just seems too hard. There's too much embroiled in it, which 
as you've kind of described, like seems kind of like a dangerous idea. We have to have these discussions at some point. But their issue seems to be that Mouse makes having these difficult discussions too easy, that they don't want to deal with the complexity. They don't want to deal with the narrative, the outcome, any kind of historical truth with it. And Mouse is so accessible that it would enable students to start having those kind of conversations, which could be massively beneficial for them to have this kind of access to otherwise difficult content. They did not seem to take any other issues with any other segments of the curriculum at the time. Let's stop for our sponsor break. It can be hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel when you have high interest debt. And sometimes it can be even harder to ask for help, but that's where Upstart comes in. Upstart powered personal loans can help you pay down high interest debt all online with simple and easy to understand payment terms. Upstart has helped over 1.8 million customers on their path to financial freedom. You can check your rate in minutes for loans between $1,000 to $50,000 without impacting your credit score. And if you're approved, you can receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. So you want to lower your rate of what you're paying. You want to consolidate what might be multiple credit cards. And maybe you have on top of that personal expenses you want to fund. Upstart can get you one fixed monthly payment with a clear payoff date. And if you're thinking my credit score is not so good, Upstart knows you're more than just your credit score. Their model considers other factors like your income, employment, and other information provided in your loan application. Don't wait and check your rate today at upstart.com slash pretty. That's upstart.com slash pretty to check your rate today. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit income and certain other information provided on your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash pretty. So I have not read the American Girl books, but I remember my daughter going through a phase of being into the dolls and into the books. And it seemed like those were, you know, like Mouse, there's something uniquely powerful about not actually a good history. Like the mouse gives some sort of chronology about the overall Holocaust, but it's just one person's experience. But hearing one person's experience, especially if you're teaching, make it a kid. It could be a real kid. It could be a fictional kid. So you could just teach this using the Diary of Anne Frank, which is what I think most high schools would do rather than mouse, from what I understand, or junior highs or whatever. You know, in fact, this sort of seemed, when I was considering works adjacent to this, so Persepolis, you know, is probably the most popular work adjacent to this in that it is also in wartime. It's also just a first-person perspective. But that has that element of, it's a child. It's this woman recounting her experience as a child and really gives you a window into that. In fact, I had a guy who's still a good friend of mine now move from Iran in... 1982 or something. And I wish that I had had something like that taught to me. That's when I was in seventh, eighth grade to tell me about the Iranian revolution. Not that, you know, it was too fresh. We couldn't know it, but it would have been nice. I betrayed no curiosity whatsoever about where this guy had come from or what he had gone through. And I don't even know even now if it was like as similar to this or if his family just got the hell out before it got too terrible. But yeah, it just seems like an immensely powerful potential tool, whether it's comics, but just these autobiographical takes on history of why would you not use that to expose people to the horrors of the world, right? Again, Diary of Anne Frank isn't going into all the tortures that went on, but it tells you about the Holocaust and what it felt like to be in fear and to be persecuted and to be ultimately killed. So it seems like that does the job. It just mouse was not designed, you know, the part that they're objecting to is actually about his mother's suicide, which of course it probably has something to do with the Holocaust, but that's not even conclusively spelled out in the book. So it was something that was necessary to explain him as a fully realized literary character, the author himself, but not part of the history lesson. Persepolis is a great example. You know, when I moved to Los Angeles 10 years ago, which is often jokingly referred to as Tirangulus because there are so many Iranians here who fled. I didn't really have a great understanding at all about why they were here or why sometimes they were very rude when you go into the stores. And, and then when I read that book, I gained not only a sympathy for them, but a deep understanding. And now I have many friends who are Iranian who live here in Los Angeles, some very close friends. I'm not saying thanks to the book, but probably in part thanks to the book, because understanding what life was like under the Shah versus the Ayatollah and understanding what they had and what they lost and why they're here and 
how they got here. And all of that was very integral for me in terms of building these relationships with my now Iranian friends here, you know, because otherwise it's like anything. You look at something with no context, you don't know what you're looking at. And while perhaps, you know, when you're a young child, there's a great benefit to that because it preserves the innocence of youth. And I say perhaps because I don't know the answer. Maybe you should tell every horrible thing to a kid right away and get them started into this roller coaster that is the world. I don't know. But certainly as we get older and we want to expand our horizons and expand our understanding of where we are and who we're with and the world and humanity, I think these works are so important and so helpful. I do hear the perspective of people who say, I don't want to traumatize my child by filling their head with this stuff. Let them figure it out when they get to college or whenever. Maybe you're putting your kid at a huge disadvantage with that too, because for many years I had no understanding of politics. And I look back and I think, boy, I probably could have done a lot better as a stand-up coming up in my career if I understood politics because how much political narrative is sewn into comedy. And I was just sort of a blind person in a way, trying to fumble my way through the world because I was never taught politics growing up. And I was just told politicians are corrupt and, you know, just stay away from it. And so I did. I took no interest in politics for most of my 20s even and never paid attention in class or took in the messages. I literally didn't understand the country that I lived in or the world that I lived in. It's nice to be naive in a way. And yet when I did realize that a lot of people in the country hate each other, that was a sad moment for me too. I so appreciate being sheltered from everything that's sad and horrible in the world. And at the same time, I so appreciate the value in knowing about it. I feel like I should direct this to Vi, who is, as the youngest person on the call, is at least within more direct memory shot of, you know, is it only in college that you were, had a political awakening or did you get some of this stuff earlier? Definitely a little bit earlier, but really starting to understand my place in this sphere, I think happened late high school, early college, just as, as you look to become more involved. But I think these comics are a really interesting and powerful way to become involved because their form is so unique. And so I appreciate these kind of narratives that look at the creation of memory, the creation of awareness of where you sit, like with your family, with history, with world events, all of these things in really unique ways. And I don't know if I ever see myself writing a comic quite like that, (laughs) but it did take a while for me to see myself where I am. Not for reasons of being sheltered, but just mostly if I'm going to know how to participate, I need to know where I am. And I didn't really feel like I, at age 12, 13, mock elections in middle or high school or whatnot are on quite the same level of participation as when I got a little bit older. But I did like participating in reading and learning. And so that placement is how I came to these Well, I I probably didn't have a political awakening until like after 9-11. I was way too old. Anyway, Anthony, anything to add to this point? That also came from a place in being in eighth grade where I had a project that we had to do around like a little banner we made. And mine happened to have a thing where it was like a foot stomping on the Capitol and having my teacher bring in my mom to have a conference with her about whether I was finding myself. I'm doing air quotes right now. And my mom going off on that teacher and being like, he knows who he is when he wakes up every morning. Like, what are you talking about? You know, and that idea of having that experience of having my mom defend me in that way was a thing that was very important to me and who I was. I knew my parents were people who lived through and went through and marched and all those kinds of things and had all those things happen to them. Even to the point where the rule that I always learned from my mother was the idea of always follow the rules. So when you break them, they mean something. There was always that place in which you don't want to give a reason for people to be able to lay the stereotype on you, but also don't stand up for something that isn't just. Those are things I learned as a young kid as a way of just also just surviving. The two things I throw at that is that protecting children, as great as there are a lot of things about it that we should definitely be doing, that's a very new concept in the world of history. You know, it's the Industrial Revolution on that we're kind of having that world of looking at kids and life expectancies and them their labor and all those kinds of things. There's a lot of great things from that. There's also some things too of part of the coming of age world as a child is learning the things and the how to survive in the world that help you be able to get through things. And that I think our modern world sometimes overcorrects in that direction where you can still keep a child very safe physically 
and have them work a million hours, but still allow them to grow and challenge themselves as far as how they fit and the concepts in the world they see. And the thing I use in my class that I have, like Satire and Comics class I've taught many times before, I look specifically at anime and like Naruto, specifically in the world of that, where there's an entire arc about a war-torn country and the idea of creating an ultimate weapon that comes out every 70 years. It destroys an entire village that then people remember and never want to have war again. And pain, it's asking Naruto, like, show me a better way to stop war other than this ultimate weapon that gets used as an example of how terrible war is. And you know, it's aimed at a preteen Japanese kid who lives in a world where their country is the example of that exact weapon. There's something kind of interesting about that and that being something of a device that allows you to understand your place in history. I did not try to include manga in this because manga, as we had a manga episode here once, is so completely open in subject matter covered that just the attitude in Japan, like here it's like, wow, there's a comic that's about a war. And for them, it'd just be like, you can have comics about anything, any particular magazine that's on the newsstand. You could have a comic version of it. So of course you're going to have comics about war. Just to ask a follow-up that as a young person into comics. But to say that is aimed at kids though. So your own history as a, you know, I thought about comics. Again, I didn't get into comics until I was an adult. Comics were not a part of my childhood. And part of the reason that they weren't is because I thought that they were just like some nerdy escapism or something. But was your engagement with comics more social from the start? Yes, 100%. As I raise my thing that you can't see on the podcast, I'm an X-Men shirt on. Like the X-Men is the thing that got me into comics. This idea that it was a representation of the other that blew my mind and was amazing as this 10-year-old kid of trying to understand my little bit of my place in the world, seeing the idea of mutants. The kind of awesome thing of when I started reading comics in the early 90s, there's so many great things in the 80s. And specifically dealing with the Days of Future Past stuff and all those things, it's like very much on the nose, you know, we're rounding up mutants, you know, kind of world. And it was 100% a thing that I was able to see my world and what that was in it as I was learning those things. And then also the other thing I really gravitated towards as a kid was Black Panther. That was a thing that allowed me to see that world too, even though very problematic at that time, some of it. But that concept of like, I instantly had no doubt that the X-Men spoke to me and it was because they were minorities. <laughs> that was 100% what they were. Yeah, X-Men spoke to me a lot as a kid as well. There's so many powerful messages in the X-Men. The origin story of Magneto, how he comes from, he's a Holocaust survivor and yet he's the bad guy because his perspective is that humanity is evil and needs to be destroyed. It's a very mature concept for a kid's book to take somebody who is a victim and also make them an aggressor. I mean, I think that's often the villain origin stories is like they went through something horrible and so they are taking it out on the world. So it's a version of that. But the fact that it's in a real life, the actual Holocaust, it's not just like somebody got chemicals dumped on them or whatever fictional bullshit. Right. It's not like the Joker story where, you know, it falls in a vat. It is a Holocaust education in and of itself. And it's very interesting to me, specifically going back to, we see the world through our lens as a Jew. When I was reading those books, it really resonated with me as a kid. And when I used to work in rehab centers with adolescents who were drug addicted, I used to use the X-Men as an example a lot because a lot of them would beat up on themselves for being in a rehab and getting to where they are. And I'm like, well, why don't you think of yourselves as gifted? Is different because you didn't follow the route that everybody else did. And sure, you made some choices that were scary to your life and to your health. But a lot of that came out of the fact that you basically are imaginative people. I mean, a lot of what drugs are is sort of people who are addicted to the imagination and kind of want to put their imagination on steroids for a little while, which I guess is a kind of a meta example for drugs. But I'm like, you guys are all very interesting and different. You have these powers and you're now in this place where you're learning how to use your powers the right way. You came in as like the X-Men before they were in Professor Xavier's school for gifted children. And now here you are and you're going to learn how to take your unique skills and gifts instead of using them in a chaotic way of mayhem with drugs. Harness these thoughts and these feelings that are hard to handle that you use drugs to handle and turn them into beautiful art or turn them into things that can help society. And kids, when I would break it down for them like that, it really resonated a lot with the uh, adolescents that I was working with. That's, I think, what makes this medium 
so powerful as you've both described that you can see yourself and others through this lens that's very visual that's very easy to disseminate and break apart so even if you don't match exactly that you still have kind of like a home in that story i'm a wonder woman fan and only really became one when i went to college and saw a lot of my desire to be represented to kind of have like a female hero, somebody that I could aspire to be in that setting. But then that goes back to why these particular stories about war and about trauma experiences, all of these things are so interesting and and maybe why they make what seems to be adults so nervous. Because if kids can already see themselves in the superhero genre, what is going to stop them from seeing themselves in a story about the, you know, quote unquote, other, if they can start to associate with somebody who doesn't look like them, or hasn't even had the same experience as them, well, then that's very powerful. And occasionally can be depending on where you stand could be seen as dangerous, because it upsets some kind of American exceptionalism narrative, or it upsets some kind of hierarchy when specifically young minds can start to reach out and form kind of these broader, beautiful communities. So I think it's a fabulous form for doing all of those things in all of these different genres. The biggest anime manga right now, one of them, is Attack on Titan. And spoiler alert, if you've not watched it or read it, a large part of it deals with some Holocaust allegory world. I remember like, you know, in the last couple of years, as that story has come out in the anime, a lot of division around the idea of its use, that idea, that topic, why, you know, and that, that dynamic in that world. But it is 100% such an effective story that is dealing a lot with things, especially in this current world of seeing people as the other and what choices you make as your worldview changes and alters based on what you see the world as. And that persecution being a large part of that storyline. It's awesome that comics and these mediums allow us to do this. It's awesome that Star Trek gave us some great things about race and things like that. I feel like something like Mouse, which is still adjacent to real life, is just so difficult for people to deal with. It's that thing of like, God forbid you show Night Will Fall to these kids in eighth grade and people's heads will explode. I think the idea that we're just so afraid in this country (laughs) of dealing with our actual problems, that at least you have a comic that leaps gets you in the door because I do know that those parents 100% would fight watching an actual thing that had more documentary world to it. The same way that certain things around, seeing certain things around lynchings and things like that, like is this hard for people to process and deal with? Right. And the school board's request to find a different way of teaching the Holocaust. What different way? What do you actually mean by that? Do you want them to see the real footage? As you said, I feel like they would probably take issue with having kids exposed to that. So what their language seems to suggest instead is they want an easier or nicer version of history, which is, as a historian, is a very upsetting thing to hear. But <laughs> in our Alabama textbooks were like slaves were well treated and we had a good time. Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Vi had recommended this 2019 book by George Takei among others, they called us enemy. So it's about being in the internment camps. I only got through about half of this, but it seemed like it was tailor-made, could very well be used in schools. I don't think anything gets, you know, people weren't being murdered in the camp, but you still get the definite idea of cruelty is one thing, and you can hear about cruelty, but actually, even in this, they made us get on a train. There were people with guns, and they made us get on a train. Like, that's the very least of what happens in Mouse. You know, a kid can relate to, I don't like being made to do stuff. Really, the government could actually just make, like, that gives you a very clear idea of sort of what dignity amounts to. Like, especially when you get to this, you know, they put us on a train and there's no bathroom facilities and you had to just, I'm starting to think of like Elie Wiesel, like these initially very affecting things in these accounts of Holocaust that I think that's absolutely a lesson that kids need to have is like, what is dignity? And just saying, be upright, be dignified, like just putting it in a positive sense doesn't convey it. It's only when you see it violated that you understand, oh, this is a thing that's really important to keep intact in people. And who is afforded the chance at dignity. And I think they call this enemy is so incredibly powerful because it does both the kind of historical narrative and the experiences of a child. 
and what the differences between those two things are. How Takai describes, I was excited to get to go and see new things. My father told me it was a vacation, that we were all vacationing together. And then telling the narrative on top of that of his father's trauma, his mother's trauma, what that meant to them. Kids can relate to that as they start to kind of piece apart as we were talking about their place in the world. So relating to not knowing and then learning and then using that knowledge to decide, well, who am I? What do I believe? What do other people maybe believe about me? Those are really powerful ideas. And I think all three of these narratives, Mouse and Persepolis, and and they call this enemy when put in conversation with each other, start to create a genre where that's the point. The point is to have hard discussions and to do it in a form that communicates not necessarily like the grandeur or the pop of comics, but to communicate the seriousness of an experience through a medium that is recognizable to anybody or accessible to anybody. I think there is a lot of potential in there. Even with Mouse coming from the 80s, we still have plenty of time to make this into something, to continue building on that tradition for all of its values. As we near the end of this conversation, we actually haven't spoiled much of Mouse. (laughs) It's about the Holocaust. What's there to spoil? And a lot of what is startling, like if you've never read this, is just the imagery. And so I guess I wanted to give folks a chance to say a little, you know, what seems like, oh, this is so inviting. There are cute pictures of mice. Yes, I know it's about the Holocaust. That's terrible. But there's humor in the way that he's interacting with his father, who's telling the story. And it's sort of only gradually you get the sense of how this is because his father is so fundamentally damaged. Like even if you realize that right from the beginning, it is something that is a slow burn throughout the book such that it's only toward the end when it really becomes a dramatic focus as opposed to just something that is chuckly to throw in between the scenes of increasingly harrowing. But then when we get to the point of mice with their heads back in this Edward Munch, the scream sort of thing that is haunting, given that there are pictures of mice, which is, of course, entirely idiosyncratic to this book. When I was looking at some things that were similar, there was another book I got, this Paracuellos, Carlos Jimenez, Children of Defeated in Franco's Fascist Spain. Apparently, this was started in the 70s. I read about five pages of it, and I didn't want anything to do with it. It's just like, this is just bad things happening to people and did not have any of the inherent charm of Spiegelman's art in particular. So I was maybe saying how effective Spiegelman's art style in particular and the art style in Persepolis, this more cartoony style. I feel like this is not a formula that is easily replicated. And even though I enjoyed what I read of the Takai book, and I think, again, it's a great way of pitching it as an educational thing for young people to understand this thing that happened. But the art itself did not strike me as remarkable in any way, such that I feel like as a graphic novel, this is a monumental achievement. It's more like it's great politically that this happened. And I like George Takai and I want to hear the story. Yeah, well, both those books are remarkable and not only the art with regard to the drawing, but the art of the storytelling. The narration on both of those books is done just so masterfully that it just draws you in from the moment you start reading and you don't want to put it down. And with Mouse in particular, too, that you are at first engaging with the story from the perspective of the human watching the mice and the cats. But as it goes on, that binary starts to melt away. And you see Spiegelman in the mouse mask, or you see people in the mask. That reminder that this is humanity, this is a human story, this is history, is so incredibly powerful. And it's not communicated in either of these two cases with any kind of large color or even some more traditional comic eye-catchy things. We talked kind of briefly about how Mouse is a contemporary to Watchmen which uses the color, the line work, the splash pages, um, especially in its last issue, to shock and awe. But neither Mouse or or Persepolis need that. It's just black and white, which I'm sure if, if we had another hour to break down the metaphor of that, just the black and the white would be an interesting discussion in and of itself. I think I don't know if you in the fun little box set of Mouse, there's a cool little thing here as I'm showing people you can't see at home. It is sold out. You can't even buy it anymore. But yeah. (laughs) That goes through other alternate art styles that he was doing of the mice. And then also the idea of a killable thing in here of 
the story of how he got to there coming from wanting to do a comic about race in America and the idea of Mickey Mouse and then going from like, ah, I shouldn't write about black people, but I found another way of talking about it that has to do with my personal story about being Jewish. And that idea that already was on that journey of the animal world coming from that, which is kind of interesting when I got this version of it, because I would heard that before, but I didn't see the art stuff of him drawing that out. And so that was kind of cool. He has like a, like a version of Birth of a Nation and the idea of these black mice and cat white people. Yes, and that early rendition of the mouse just the initial story has the son, Mickey, as you said, which if McMinn County decides to keep this band, perhaps they can replace it with that just single strip, which not only takes on the story of the Holocaust and a survivor, but also takes on the concept of childhood innocence. So just as a gentle suggestion to Tennessee County School Boards, maybe they could use that one instead. <laughs> Well, I found it a funny little tidbit that part of the reason that he released a volume one when he did as a book uh, is because he wanted to beat that American Tale was being made, the film Steven Spielberg, Don Bluth, which also let's have the Jewish immigrants be mice and their oppressors be cats. And I better get a book out widely distributed, not just these serialized publications of little bits of it. So I'm not seen as copying that, which I wouldn't even imagine being on the same planet. Even though, yes, okay, there's mouse as a metaphor for Jewishness, but it just wouldn't have even occurred to me. Maybe we're so far from the 80s and American Tale is not a tale that has resonated through time in the way that mouse has. Oh, Five was great. It was a, a real ripoff of Tom and Jerry. Okay. <laughs> all right, we got to shut this down. If I may, I will, first of all, I just want to say thank you for putting me once again with such an interesting panel. And please, folks, if you want to support a comic artist who's trying to put his thoughts and feelings and stories into books, visit fairenoughcomic.com and pick up some of my work. All right. Anthony, do you have anything to plug? Not really. Just learn some stuff. Anthony is working in voice coaching for kids, right? Coaching. So nothing yep. that you get a, a percentage of such that you don't want to promote. Five, I'll direct people toward the Washington Post thing that you amazing. I can't get anything in the Washington Post now, let alone when I was in grad school. Anything else you want to plug? What is the latest thing you're working on? If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm just at Viola Burlu, and uh, you can see some of my work regarding censorship and gender um, from comics 1940 through 1970 is my current project. But my biggest plug, and especially for anybody who's still in the education system, is just to keep reading Mouse. Awesome. Yeah, I'm not even allowed to subscribe to the Washington Post, probably. All right. Bye, listeners. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.